Well, good morning. My name is Kyle Burke. I'm the youth pastor here. And like I said, first service, I'll probably be the new pastor for quite a while. So I'll be the new guy. Um, and today we're going to continue through the parable series, which is an amazing uh, opportunity for me. I love preaching and I love the parables. So I'm happy. I hope you're happy being here this morning. Uh, let's open with prayer before we jump in. All right. If you would join me. Father, we, uh, we come to you on this beautiful day to worship you, to, to be grateful for the freedom we have to worship you in this city, in this country, to gather together, to ponder some of the harder words of Jesus, um, where, where he just lays out the truth. And I pray that, Lord, the truth will set us free and not bind us, not make us feel condemned. Um, so I just pray, Lord, that you speak through me and that this text just comes to life for these amazing people. In your son's name, amen. All right, so parables. The reason I like parables is because I like film. And parables are basically little film scenes. They're captured moments where the audience that Jesus is talking to sits down and watches him. And he usually gives it some meat, some like normal everyday scene, some normal everyday person that then becomes a theological reality. So parables have a lot of meaning to them. I think they really pop off the page especially if you read a parable within the context of where um, Jesus is addressing an issue. And um, I think something about parables that reflects in scenes is you can't have a good movie without some memorable scenes. Am I right? Like you can have a bunch of boring scenes and have a terrible movie. You can even have a movie with one or two good scenes and it would still be an okay movie. You're like, yeah, it was a good fight scene, but I don't remember anything else. The gospels are full of both. Great narrative, great scenes, great parables. Um, one of my favorite films of all time is Casino Royale. It's the Daniel Craig, James Bond movie. And um, I love Daniel Craig because he takes James Bond to the next level. Because James Bond has always been the suave, womanizing kind of guy. But Daniel Craig is actually an agent that gets stuff done. And Casino Royale is an amazing experience. It's two and a half hours, and it feels like an hour and a half. They just plow through scene after scene that seems to work really well together. And I think what keeps our interest in the James Bond franchise are, I think, some of the most iconic scenes in film where James Bond in his slick tux with all his cool gadgets tucked away, he walks into a big party or like a ballroom and all these fancy people and he goes, a dirty martini. Um, or a martini, make it dirty, or whatever he says. But the point of the scene is that you see the audience. We see all these creepy, usually hulking guys in other outfits, like spying on James Bond with their earpieces. He's clearly walking into a trap. It looks like a party, but it's a trap. And the fun part about the movies is James Bond finds a way to get out with the girl, with the gadgets, right? He, and he gets away. And the thrill of the, the James Bond franchise is that James Bond is pretty invulnerable. Yeah, he may be in danger, but he is much more dangerous to the people that come against him. And we see this in the Gospels, that Jesus is the OG Bond, but instead of shooting bullets, he shoots blessings. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but Jesus walks into trap after trap after trap, laid for, for him by his enemies, and he walks out with his head held high, with them usually being shamed by the truth or by a miracle. And I think that's just what makes the Gospels so action-packed. And I chose Luke because Luke is the most action-packed Gospel out of all four. Mark is a really fast gospel. Matthew has a lot of words to it. John is very confusing. But Luke is straightforward, action-packed. And Luke says Jesus Christ is literally a superhero on earth. He's not intimidated by the, the storms that come against him. 
He's not intimidated by the demons that come against him. He's not intimidated by dead people. He's like, get back up. You're not done yet. (laughs) So to Luke, Jesus is this supernatural person, which obviously we know he is. But in the context, he's building this narrative that's going towards the final climactic conclusion. And there, Jesus reveals something that we'll see in the passage that I feel like really resonates with all of us as we come uh, to this story. So if you have your Bibles, we'll be in Luke 14 today. But we're not going to jump right into the parable. Just that's where you should turn, Luke 14. Um, I will set the stage. It's called the parable of the great banquet. So it's technically Luke 14, 15 through 24. And I need to set the context for this parable. Because if you just read it in isolation, it doesn't really pop off the page. But when you see the bond-like scene surrounding it, you're like, oh, stuff's going down. But before we go to Luke 14, we're going to read Luke 9. Because this is kind of the pivoting, turning point of Jesus' ministry where he stops going out into the world, into Judea, and he starts going towards Jerusalem. It says, he set his face. When the days draw near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. This is more than just like a, he's setting a destination on his Apple Maps. Like He's not doing that. He's not putting a pin in. He's literally saying, my entire life is going to accumulate and climax in a city that is one of the most important cities in all of Scripture. And the climax is not what you expect. He knows that he's going to die. So he sets his face. And I like the image of um, setting his face like, like a man on a mission. He's, he's like, I will complete this no matter what comes against me. And we see that his entire ministry begins to call away weak followers. He stops preaching easy things to understand. He starts preaching hard messages in Luke 12, or 14, uh, 27, he says, whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. And to a Jewish person, that is incredibly offensive. Because they're like, I know somebody in my life or I know my friend who was crucified by the Romans. How dare you tell me to pick up my cross and follow you? What the heck are you talking about? And he lost a lot of people for that. He lost a lot of followers. And I think his ministry can be defined most accurately in Luke 12, 49 through 51, which should be up on the screen, yeah. So just imagine Jesus saying this passionately, right? I have come to bring fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled, but I have a baptism to undergo, and what constraint I am under until it is completed. Do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division, right? So Jesus is saying, I have a baptism to undergo. They're like, weren't you already baptized? He's like, yeah, I'm talking about death, okay? I'm talking about death and resurrection. It ain't no small thing. So he's just pointing all his energy, all his passion, all his focus at the end of his ministry, and he knows it's going to be capstone by his death. And so he walks into this Luke 14 parable in, in verses 1 through 4, and we see that there's a setup for him. And we know with Jesus being this passionate guy and there's a setup for him, it's not going to end well for his opponents. It's not going to end well. So Luke 14, 1. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. Can you see them all with their earpieces in? Watching him come in, he's like, he's in the building. And uh, there in front of him was a man swelling from an abnormal, uh, uh, there's a man in front of him who was suffering from an abnormal swelling of his body. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts of the law the question he's been asking them the entire book. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? They all know the answer that he's going to give, but they remain silent. They're like, I don't even want to open my mouth at this point. He's just going to make fun of me. 
So taking hold of the man, Jesus heals him and sends him away. The whole scene is a setup. Jesus is invited to this high roller party, and there just happens to be a weird bloated guy there. And everyone's watching him, like, what's going to happen, right? And from that moment, Jesus knows this is, this is a hardness of heart that's being clear. Like, they're setting me up. So he says, hey, come here. Do you guys think it's lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And they already know that's considered work. So no, Jesus. And Jesus goes, y'all crazy. It is totally legitimate for God to come and heal somebody on the Sabbath. He heals the man and sends him away. And there's no rejo- like rejoicing. There's no recorded imp- like praise to God. It's just straight up like, well, our plan failed kind of deal. They set him up. They set Jesus up with his own miracle. You have to be in a pretty bad place if you're going to try to use a prophet's tools against them. It's just really weird to think that they're going to use a healing against Jesus. And so Jesus knows this is not going to be a fun night. He knows he's not going to just like banter around the table. He actually starts insulting the host right away. He just straight up starts like, telling these tiny parables, basically making fun of the host. And so what we see in, in verse 15, we enter into this scene where Jesus starts telling a story. And in verse 15, I'm going to read the whole passage. He says, when one of those at the table heard Jesus ranting and raving against the host, he said to Jesus, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. And he's trying to de-escalate the situation. Jesus replied, perfect. Now I get to tell a story. A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry, as we would all become angry, and ordered his servant, go quickly into the streets and alleyways of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Sir, the servant said, what you have ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. And that's when Jesus drops the mic and walks out. So this all kicks off with a setup. And then Jesus takes that setup and uses it as an opportunity to teach a parable before this kicks off. Then in verse 15, the man just does this random exclamation. Blessed be those who sit at the feast of the kingdom of God. In our day and age, it would be like you're at a family reunion and someone brings up politics. And there is World War III about to happen in the room. And someone goes, isn't this gravy delightful? And everyone is supposed to go, oh, yes, it is. Oh, yes, thank God you redirected our attention elsewhere. (laughs) This man is probably looking for a collective, amen, yes, let's eat. Like, let's focus on the food. And Jesus goes, let me tell you a story. Let's take this opportunity to make things worse for you. (laughs) And as we continue into the story, just remember Some of Jesus' parables are more difficult to to kind of find uh, God in it. Maybe it's like more hidden here. The host should be seen as a God-like figure, a father, like God the father-like figure. So keep that in mind as we explore it because all those themes get played out very obviously. And at the very last verse in 24, Jesus actually inserts himself into the story. So verses uh, uh, 16 through 20 kind of lay out the beginning of the story. So I'm going to read them again. A man was preparing a great banquet and invited many people or many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant 
to tell those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses, the first said, and then we'll read those in a bit. So what I want you to see is that this man was preparing a great banquet. And in Matthew, the same parable is being told, and the man is not just a man, he's a king. So this is supposed to be a very wealthy, connected person. A high-end, probably either a politician or a mayor or somebody very connected in the city. And he is throwing an extravagant affair. So the first point we're going to look at is the banquet of God is extravagant. He is trying to create an amazing event where business deals are made, marriages are proposed, alliances are formed. This is going to be a VIP high roller deal to create prosperity within the city and for him and for them. And it mirrors the Jewish people being elected as the chosen people of God. They were raised up and they were turned into this holy priesthood, a nation where God was blessing and dwelling with them. And that's kind of the connection point where these religious leaders were saying, well, they're the VIP guests. And Jesus just says, well, you all didn't come to the banquet, right? Because the host sends out his RSVPs. So there's the first RSVP that's not mentioned, but that was custom, which was they would send out a list many, many, many months in advance to get hard numbers down. Hey, you're coming to this party? Okay, good. You're coming to this party? Just like we do with email. You know, click on this link. You're all, you're all set to go. But in, in that day, it was really important to have people come when the RSVP was given because you couldn't just go to Whole Foods and pick up extra food if you underprepared. They didn't have a Whole Foods. They had whatever they had, Marketplace or something, stinky, stinky sheep to kill. And so what happened is the, the, the RSVP list had to be made ahead of time. And then they would send out a servant when the meal was ready. He says, come now, everything is ready. The food is hot, the entertainment's here, you know, everything is ready. And that's when they say no. It's not the first RSVP where they were like, yeah, I'm not going to be in town. I'll be traveling to Rome or something. No, it's the second one. And that was hugely insulting because you can't just pop things back in the fridge in the first century. If you roasted like an entire cow, that entire cow needed to be eaten now. Otherwise, they'd throw it out. And that was a huge expense to risk on these parties. And you were looking at as these kind of events as a way to both, both indebt yourself with somebody else, you invite them to your party so they'll invite you, or again, to make these trade deals, these alliances. So for these people, these VIP guests to back out was incredibly, incredibly insulting. And something that maybe is missed when you read this parable, maybe you've heard this preached before, but um, there's a verse in here, in verse 18, they all alike began to make excuses. In the Greek, the word is best translated as unanimously. So the whole VIP list of guests unanimously cancels day of. And to me, that smells like conspiracy. A lot of people have looked at this and, and there's like, there's this idea, this is not a coincidence. This is not just a couple bad examples. These three guys that give responses kind of mirror the rest of the VIP list. They're all unanimously saying, we're not showing up. Why is this important? Well, first of all, these, these excuses are stupid. I'm just gonna walk, them through, walk you through some of the modern examples of what these would look like. So instead of I just bought a field and I must go see it, it's more like I just bought a house over the phone and I must now go take a look at it and see the neighborhood. Like you didn't know anything about it before, you heard about this deal and you just like, hey, I want it right now, I'm paying you, I'm sending, wiring you the money. Doesn't make any sense, you don't even know anything about the house. And so it's like this last minute thing, end of the day, why would you do that? That's not a good excuse. Number two, just found a cheap RV on Craigslist. 
I have no idea if it's condition maker model or if it will start. I'm heading over to try it out, basically. <laughs> Again, you can wait till the next day to do that, bro. Like, you can wait two days to do that. The RV's not going to be moving anytime soon. The oxen didn't need to be working on a Sabbath anyway. Um, and then finally, just picked up some champagne and roses for my wedding day. Hint, hint, wink, wink. Busy. Yeah, that's super inappropriate in the first century. People did not talk about their honeymoon experiences like this. So this is just a straight up, uh, like, insult to the host. He doesn't even give him a please excuse me. He's just like, I'm busy, basically. And so all of these come together. These accumulate into this enormous slap in the face to the host. Bam! And what it's doing socially is it's actually kicking the host out of their social circle and of his position. This is a big deal much more than just a missed party opportunity. This man was hoping and looking for these connections, these relationships within the city to grow, to blossom into something bigger. But now he has no one coming to his party. He spent an extravagant amount of money and they want him to be considered an outcast now. They're like, bye-bye. You should leave our city. Bye-bye. And so the banquet of God is extravagant, but he pivots and he gives it to people that don't deserve it. Because that's our next point. The banquet of God is expansive. He says, all right, you guys are going to treat me like an outcast? I'm going to bring the outcast into my home. He says, bring in all the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. This is the same exact list that Luke mentions a, little, a few verses before in verses 12 through 14 of 14, chapter 14. And those people cannot pay you back if they invite you to a banquet. That was his point before. So this, this host, this man is going to take a huge loss by inviting these people into his home. But he's saying, I identify as them now. I am an outcast in the eyes of the world, so I don't lose anything by bringing them into my home. And in fact, those people are going to gain everything by being in my home. They get to make the connections with me and my family. They get to become part of my inner circle. They get blessed with food and entertainment and new clothes and a new identity. So to the host, he's gaining an entire people group that's been untapped and unreached. And we see in a few verses later, in, verses tw in verse 22, that there's still room even with all these people in. Before I go there, though, we have to start looking at the list of people that are just invited right now. These people would have never showed up to a party like this. I don't even think they would have been allowed outside the party. They probably would have had to been swept down the street, you know, hey, you creepy guy with uh, no legs, go over there. Like, we don't want to see you. We don't want you in our presence. Not only is he bringing them into his house, He's bringing them into his life. The host is saying, please come in. Go get them. Bring them in right now, quickly. Chop, 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 chop. And just for a visual, think about San Francisco. It's a big city. Jerusalem was not as expansive, but it is as is populated. And there was a lot less care and health care back then. So the, imagine the streets having a lot more poor people. Right now, there's roughly about 10,000 homeless people in San Francisco. 10,000. So imagine those 10,000 showing up to a party and the host goes, man, we still got a lot more room. This was a big party. This is a big VIP list that said no. This is potentially thousands of people that were like, nah, you ain't a part of my life anymore. And so in verse 22, he says, there's still room. Let's go get more people. Before we continue though, this is a, this is gonna take some time to develop because the next group of people, we don't really think too much about. It's, it, we don't have these kind of people as clearly portrayed as they did in the first century because the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind were people within a city. And what that meant 
was a city was a fortress, a place where people would come. There was law, there was, there was rules, there was safety. So if you were allowed in the city, even if you were poor, crippled, lame, or blind, you were really well off compared to people in the country. In the country, there was no law. It was the law of the jungle. Eat or be eaten, literally. Like there was, if you were traveling between the cities, you could get mugged, killed, raped. There was no, there was no cops out there patrolling with their highway cars. There's nothing. There's just pure lawlessness. And so people that had to live outside the city were very undesirable. There were people that normal, normal human beings wouldn't interact with. So when he says, hey, you need to start going out into the country roads and the lanes, that would have been a big, big thing for a servant to hear. They're like, I'm going to go get beat up. <laughs> so let me give you some examples of who would have been out there. Murderers, prostitutes, robbers, vagabonds, transients, soldiers, rapists, swindlers, witches, Bunch of people that you don't want to you don't want to like be caught in the dead of night with, basically. And they're people that don't want to be found. So he says, go and find them. And then the kicker is compel them to come in. Why does he have to do that? Why does he have to tell his servants to compel them? Well, these people would have never stepped foot in a party like this, even when invited, because one, they would have seen it as a trap. Right? I'm being invited into a party, now I owe this man something I can never pay. Basically, I could become a slave to this to this person. Or I could be used as a form of entertainment. Let's beat up the transient. Ho, ho, ho. Like literally, this was a life or death deal. And these people would not come into to the, to the party by their own will. So he knows there's going to be a battle here. He knows you need to go and compel them. And we have these people in our world today. They may not look like that level of desperate. There are plenty of desperate people like that in this city too. But even beyond that, it's the people that can't and will not step foot in the church because one, it's either meaningless to them or they've been wounded and hurt by people of the church. And to them, the last thing they want is to walk through those doors and become made, made fun of or get disappointed again. And so that's kind of how we should see this group of people. They will not come to church on their own accord. They're not gonna get a flyer and be like, oh, I should go to church. They're like, hey, look, some more firewood for my, like, you know, fire, paper for my fireplace. It takes faithful servants to seek these people out. They don't want to be found. They don't want to be brought in. And that symbolizes kind of how we as Christians should pursue a life with Christ. My parents are witness to this, where they were brought in by people, even potentially against their will. There was a lot of denial. There was a lot of rejection. There was a lot of spiritual doubt. And it took the compelling love of these servants to, to pursue them. And because of that, my entire, my brothers and I are all Christians and I'm up here today. I wouldn't be up here today without the loving pursuit of God's servants for the lost, for people that don't want to go to church. There's plenty of people that if they just knew Jesus' name, like the poor, the crippled, the lame, the, 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 the lame, the blind, they would be like crawling to come meet him. That's what they did, right? There are plenty of people that people brought to Jesus that wanted to go meet Jesus to be healed. But there's an entire population of people that one, didn't even know about him, or two, was afraid to meet him because they thought, he was a holy man, and there's no way I can get close to that guy. Because the final part of this, this, this uh, parable is that the banquet of God is expensive. So, it's an extravagant affair. It's got tons of rooms. It's a big, big house with lots and lots of rooms, if you know that song. A big, big table with lots and lots of food, right? But who's paying for all this? And we find out Jesus immediately is preaching from his own life. I'm going to pay for it. You see, Jesus is literally on his way, on his way to Jerusalem to die. 
He is on his way to be killed by the men around the table. Think about that. These men around the table are prominent Pharisees and and keepers of the law. These are the men that when Jesus walks into Jerusalem with the crowds cheering his name, they go and conspire to kill him. So Jesus being in the room with them is not just a condemnation. Some people see Jesus as this confrontational guy who hates religious people. No, he's saying, if you truly mean what you say, Mr. Weird Guy, who said, let's all eat at the banquet of the kingdom of God, he's like, there's only one way you can do that, and I'm gonna give you the loving discipline, the information you need, which is me. This is my last olive branch to you. I'm, I'm literally sitting in this uncomfortable trap of a meal to give you one last opportunity to repent. <laughs> Because I'm going to die by your hands, and you better figure this out sooner than later. Sorry, I think I missed my spot. There we go. Haha. The banquet of God is expensive because it is paid for in blood. Jesus is much greater than Bond because Bond saves his own skin. Bond gets out of the traps. Jesus walked into a trap. He even says in the Garden of Gethsemane, Do you not know that I can call on legions of angels to basically evaporate you guys, turn you into dust? But I'm not. I'm going to go have my body nailed to a cross by you because I want you at my table. I want you in the presence of the Father. I want you to become a part of this new family. I just, I find this this parable just insane because of that. He's sitting with the people that are going to kill him, preaching this at them. And in a moment, we're going to take communion together um, because it, it's fitting that we're, it's, a, it's a Sunday we're talking about meals and the banquet of God. That's what communion is. It's kind of a reflection on what Christ has done, the payment, the expensive nature of this amazing gift, but also a celebration. We're looking forward to the coming party in heaven. I mean, literally, guys, it's going to be crazy. It's going to be even bigger than this party because Jesus told his disciples, until I meet you again, I'm not going to drink from the vine. He's, just imagine this enormous thing of wine in heaven. He can't wait to like break open when we show up. He's like, let's go. Like, it's going to be so amazing. And not only that, you're going to get eternal life and you're going to be with God. Like, this is an amazing gift. And so as we come to communion, we have this weird kind of almost paradox where we're coming sometimes humbled, sometimes in a space of, Lord, I, I don't deserve this. And sometimes we're looking forward to the future. But Often we forget that sometimes Jesus preaches a word that the world doesn't understand, and his final verse in verse 24 is hard. It's hard to parse. He says, I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. There is a, there's a limit. There's a, there's a closed door policy. There's a rejection that you can send. You can say no on the RSVP, and then you can't come back later. Once the party is done, it's done. Once the doors are shut, it's shut. And so... We, we live in a world right now that is very confused. Um, my wife and I found this out the hard way, what an interesting way the other day. So we shamelessly, and trust me, this is going to connect, we shamelessly watched The Bachelorette. Now, I've never watched The Bachelorette before, ever in my life, and I don't think I ever will again. But we watched The Bachelorette last season because the guy was like, I'm a Christian. I'm, I'm going to do this the Christian way. And we're like, really? So we watched it. And then this one, this lady is like, I'm a Christian. I'm going to do this the Christian way. We're like, we learned from the last guy that didn't work out. We're just going to watch this one. 
she started off really great. She tells almost a testimony about herself where she used to live this life, where she was pleasing other people and not protecting herself and living for herself. And then she found Jesus and, and he forgave her for her sins. And we're like, oh, promising start. This is not too bad. Then last week happened and it all went downhill. I'll just tell you right now. Because this woman, she uh, is looking for her husband. It's a, like final four. And she basically chooses to sleep with two guys out of the four. And then the last guy... Um, doesn't know this, by the way. He meets with her. And this last guy is a piece of work, as is. He is, a, he is a piece of work. Luke. And his name is Luke, just like the book. Anyway, hey, he's a bad guy. But he has this weird morality that comes out. It's actually really cool. He literally speaks biblical truth on public television that millions of people are watching. And I was like, wow, that's, that's God. But basically, he says, hey, as we pursue marriage together, I believe, and you're a Christian, I believe that we're called to this holy union. Marriage and sex have such a deep connection to each other. I want to be, be celibate together until we get married. I want to wait till marriage with you. Do you mind if, like, we do that? And she basically goes, how dare you tell me to live my life? Jesus forgives me for all my sins. And you're like, true. There's a truth there, right? You were invited into the banquet, no matter if you were a murderer, a rapist, a witch, right? It doesn't matter. But... When you come to the banquet, he asks you to start trying to be transformed, to become a new person. We, we crucify the old flesh. He says, pick up your cross. He doesn't say, I'm going to die for your pleasurable lifestyle. And so there's this big conflict. She sends him off the show for that. She doesn't send him off the show because he's a pathological liar, which is crazy. She sends him off the show because he sticks to a biblical standard of sexuality. I'm like, what is happening? So we looked online. And there is a huge war in the Twitter sphere and on Instagram. Christians taking her side, saying, God is a God of love. Jesus is a Jesus of tolerance. You can sin all you want. Continually sin and Christ will forgive you. Again, there's a truth to that before you know him. Once you know him and choose to follow him, that stops right there. You're not going to, and the, uh, Hebrews says this. He says, uh, in Hebrews 6.6, 6, it says, to these people's loss who continue to live the free lifestyle and say, oh, forgiveness will cover me, they are crucifying the Son of God again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Jesus did that already. He did that once. It doesn't need to be done to him again. And um, Jesus will not abide anyone who makes a mockery of the cross. I'm sorry, but the blood of Jesus is too precious. He was the life who came down to become death for us. And so when he says, I did not come to bring peace on earth, he's saying, I'm not coming to bring peace between people so they can live peacefully with each other and live whatever lifestyle that makes them happy. He's saying, I'm coming to bring peace between you and the Father. Because without me, there is no, there is no life. <laughs> there is no, there's no happy ending for you. So when the world keeps telling us that Jesus is this God of love and he just forgives everything, we... We can affirm what's true, and we have to stand for what's not. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. It's almost like people forget to read some of the stuff. They go, Jesus is a God of love. You're like, yeah, that's why he came down and then preached some hard stuff. So get on board or <laughs> get on out. So I guess where we're going with this is if you haven't given your life to Christ, like I, I compel you to make this decision now. Like this is, and if not now, as soon as possible. If you're on the fence, like Jesus is, is a gracious God. God is waiting for you and he'll keep knocking on that door. But there's a time when the door is shut and the party's done and you don't know when that will be. Unfortunately, I wish we could. I wish we could like give people, you know, like an IOU salvation card. Like eventually when you figure it out, here you go. 
But it's really, the reason the, the hosts go quickly into the streets and go quickly out into the, the byways and highways is because it's, we don't know when he comes back. We don't know when your life will end. We don't know when there's a decision in your mind that you cannot make anymore. And there's nothing better than getting eternal life. Again, I talked about the banquet being this magnificent affair. We're going to meet him and all the people that have gone before us and party forever and ever and ever in the presence of God. Where all the pain and suffering of your life will become meaningless and, and actually add meaning to your life because God is going to redeem it. So if you have not explored this relationship with Christ, I urge you to do this today or at least as soon as possible. And there's plenty of us in the room who know Jesus. There's plenty of us who follow him who love him and who know the cost that he paid. And I say we need to start taking some pointers from the servants that go. We cannot just idly wait for people to walk through the doors when there are people that will never do that by principle of the suffering they've endured or the lack of knowledge. They will just never do it. And so our call is to go and compel them. And the world is doing a wonderful job at insulating those kind of people with people like the bachelorette who says, like, you can have a relationship with Jesus that doesn't look like the Bible at all. No, that's not true. We should go out and tell them the truth. So up on the screen, we'll have some, um, some pointers. So yeah, first, when we start coming to communion, I ask that you reflect on, one, what it costs you, the expensive nature of the banquet that you've been given, but also to start identifying the real people in your life. They could be strangers to you technically, but they're just that one person that comes up in your head. It's like, man, I, just, I feel like if I just asked some questions and made some connections and loved on this person, they would be interested. They would be like, oh, I didn't even know that was an option. I didn't know that my life could have meaning. And then the next uh, slide will have some of the actual ways you can uh, practically go about this. So home ministry, bringing them in, hospitality is an amazing ministry. That's how we started our, our ministry at the last church. We had students over at the home that my grandpa let us rent. We had this huge space. We're like, what are we going to do with it? Let's bring kids over. Let's have a Romans Bible study. And from that just small offering of our home, giving these kids a comfortable place to eat and hang out, we, we had some of the coolest experiences of our life where kids not just gave their life to Christ in a real way, but they had real wounds and pains healed. And we're like, whoa, we just opened our home. We didn't have an agenda beyond that, beyond just loving these people. Or you can bring them uh, to a Bible study that you have a small group. A big one is to bring them here to church. This group of people, and this is one of the reasons, again, I'm gonna keep saying I, got, I, I, I took this job. You're loving people. You are kind people. I feel like I'm home when I'm walking in. And that's the word that everyone throws around when I interviewed here. I was like, what do you guys feel like about your church? You're like, it's my home. I'm like, cool, that means we can bring more people in. Because if it's like, oh, it's like my club, then some people can't come into a club. You know what I'm saying? So this is a great place for people to, to realize that the love of God is tangible, that the real people of God are loving, that they want to be a part of something bigger and better and hear the truth. Also, we have Alpha coming up. Uh, August 28th is the next Alpha series. I think, how many weeks is that again? 10 weeks? Yeah, 10 weeks. And so the best, best thing about that is it's pretty, it's a non-confrontational approach to Christ. They're going to, they're going to watch some videos. They're going to talk about Jesus, and they can say whatever they, they want. And I don't believe that. I think that's wrong. And the, the whole thing is set up to create these, a space for people to talk and to connect and to eat and to fellowship. And then finally, a lot of you are busy, either parents or, or business people or, or traveling to see your grandkids. And there's this idea that, like, when we're not at church or we're not, like, in a small group, maybe we forget that we're on mission. But these servants are called to go. And who knows how long these servants were gone out in the wilderness looking for people. 
We're called to go wherever we're at. You know, at a soccer game with a parent that you're starting to make connections with, just start seeing where they're at. Being like, how is your family doing? Is there anything I can help you with or pray for you? Do you, do you want to come to my house and like, we can like give you like a meal and get to know you? Um, that can go for business uh, events, school events. Um, the way we compel people isn't by grabbing them by the shirt collar and dragging them through these doors. <laughs> I mean, I wish it was that easy because then we just get a bunch of bodybuilders to come work for the church and everyone gets saved. But instead, we have to compel with love, compel with our words, compel with the, the message, which is come to this banquet. Like, they're not, you're not inviting them to some boring Chuck E. Cheese party, okay? This isn't some lame arcade game space. This is an amazing opportunity to meet the Son of God and God himself and to be with his people and to get a new identity, to be washed clean of your sins. So with that, let me pray, and then we are going to um, come to the table. So Lord, I thank you so much that you are God who pursues us and sends people out to find us and um, has shown us the cost at which you bought our souls, which is the blood of your son. I pray that these are not light things in our lives, that these become just foundational, real truths that we cling to and that we can begin to bring others up into this amazing communion with you. Uh, I ask that you just make this communion time a, a special time for us. In your son's name, amen.